seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Welcome everybody to today's episode of Dead Punnett Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And today we are thankfully going to be talking about something other than this ballooning coronavirus pandemic. I myself had some reservations, some hesitation about whether or not it was appropriate to be talking about anything other than the fallout, political, health, economic fallout of this pandemic in this moment. But as I started researching this episode, I've, I've discovered for myself that there's something soothing, something soothing about the workaday study analysis and battle against, uh, you know, just regular old everyday American imperialism. And that's something that uh, we surely would have taken for granted a couple of months ago. But here we are today and we're pushing on. There's been some big news, a big important report that has emerged from CEPR. That is the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C. They do really great work. Uh, longtime listeners of DPS or recent listeners will know that I had on a couple of people from CEPR uh, a couple of months ago to break down the Bolivian coup and uh, the election results. Was, was there tampering? Was there not tampering? So a, a quick little update here. October 20, 2019, Bolivia held its third general election under its 2009 constitution. As we know now, the big runners there were uh, then current president Evo Morales and former president Carlos Mesa. It, there was a big um, dust up regarding the counts. The quick count was stopped by the OAS and other actors and uh, a coup was proclaimed by many people on the left. Was that going too far? Was that accurate? It would all shake out in the interim. Uh, this is the final report, if you will, on that case. Uh, joining me today is Jake Johnston. He is a research associate with CEPR. They have released an updated final report called Observing the Observers, the OAS in the 2019 Bolivian Elections. He's going to break down all of that for us. Jake, thanks for joining us on DPS. Thanks for having me. So let's start in October. It was a much, a much milder time, if you will, if we could, if we could believe it. Uh, we were in the midst of a continuation of the Trump regime. Uh, we were in the midst of a number of global crises, uh, an impending Iran standoff, so it seemed at the time. And yet, <laughs> by today's measures, a much simpler time. Take us back to October in Bolivia. My brief rundown of the uh, situation there was was quite uh, insufficient. So refresh us about what exactly happened then. Yeah, so going back to the October 20th, 2019 election, and it was uh, incumbent Abel Morales going against divided opposition. And, you know, as you mentioned, the sort of leading opposition figure was Carlos Mesa. But because of this divided field, uh, the question was not whether who was going to get the most votes, but if Abel Morales was going to secure enough of the votes to secure a first round first round win or if it would go to a second round uh, runoff situation with the top two candidates. Uh, and so in the lead up to this election, you, you know, you had a tremendous amount of, of opposition organizing and even sort of prominent members of the opposition sort of pledging not to respect the results of the election if Morales had in, in, would in fact win in the first round. And so, you know, again, this was something that had happened, uh, you know, sort of many, many months and even you know, years of buildup. Um, you know, there had been a constitutional referendum uh, around the issue of re-election, and voters had narrowly rejected uh, a, a provision to allow for continual re-election. 
the Supreme Court overruled that decision and allowed Evo Morales to stand for re-election. But that process uh, certainly was controversial and certainly heightened the political tensions uh, in the lead up to this election in which Evo was participating. And so you had a situation which was uh, you know, characterized by this extreme polarization. And I sort of lay that as, as the sort of backdrop because it's into that mix that the OAS begins observing this election and its actions sort of begin to take root. So let's let's rewind back even further. So that's that's a nice little summary of what happened. Like I said, I had some of your colleagues on months ago when this was a, a burning topic on the left to talk about what had gone down. You know, typically these types of things happen. The left coheres around their candidate, and uh, you know, a coup is proclaimed or not. And there are a series of sort of international solidarity actions. In the wake of what has happened in other places like Chile and Venezuela, the left has found itself highly fractured. And it was certainly not taken for granted that certain elements of the progressive left or even the far left were going to immediately come to the defense of Evo Morales. Some, in fact, were sort of equivocating and arguing that he shouldn't have been running in the first place, that it was a questionable move. So it's important, I think, for us to kind of contextualize this with the long view of, let's say, election meddling by the United States, by other forces that represent ruling class elements, both domestically and internationally. Your work is focused on Haiti, and Haiti is a country that is no stranger to election meddling. Millennials who are you know, in their 20s are not old enough to, to have seen this on the front pages of their newspapers, perhaps. But that is something that is fresh in the memories of many Haitians. So talk to us about the kind of the long view of these oversight bodies and, and how it has gone wrong uh, in the past, starting with Haiti, perhaps. Yeah, sure thing. I mean, because I think, you know, there's there's obviously sort of more direct forms of, of interference in elections, right? I mean, in sort of your classic coups and, you know, funding different candidates, et cetera, like this. But I think, you know, the, the sort of context for this is the role of international observers in electoral interference and in elections more broadly, right? And in the hemisphere, in the Western hemisphere, the primary body through which this operates is the Organization of American States, you know, hemispheric organization made up of all member countries in the Western hemisphere. And they have sort of been, uh, you, you know, dained with this, um, you know, task of legitimizing or delegitimizing electoral processes throughout the hemisphere. And so, Really, you know, regardless of the country, uh, you know, the OAS is generally has an observation mission, which goes you know, for a few days before and stays through the process and then produces a report based on recommendations moving forward and occasionally goes much further. Now, often these are very non-controversial and sort of, you know, whatever missions. Uh, but there has been historically a number of times where they've sort of stepped beyond those bounds. And as you mentioned, I mean, Haiti is sort of the, the prime example. Uh, the most clear example was in 2010. And this was after the devastating earthquake that had struck Haiti in January 2010. And later that year, there was an election scheduled. Now, it's an election taking place with more than a million people displaced from the earthquake still, uh, you know, a massive relief operation underway. Uh, the outbreak of cholera, which was introduced by the United Nations after the earthquake, just starting its spread in the run up to this election. Maybe some parallels there with what we saw in the last couple of days in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that context, it was clear that these elections were going to be deeply problematic. And in fact, they were. Right. And so you had half uh, like I think 18 out of the 20 candidates or something like this uh, actually held a press conference to denounce the elections and call for their cancellation in the middle of the election day itself. 
by the time all things were said and done, you know, nearly a quarter of the vote either was never counted or was deeply flawed or full of irregularities. Um, voting centers were disrupted through violence throughout the course of the day. And, and again, so a, a deeply problematic election with no clear, uh, you know, sort of a significant unknown factor about the election due to these missing results. And within that context, the Organization of American States was brought in to provide an expert verification mission of, of this election. And without performing any actual recount of the vote or without doing any statistical inference about what actually, uh, you know, those missing votes represented, the OAS recommended changing the results of the election. So removing the candidate in second place and putting the candidate who had been in third into second place and moving on to this second round runoff. Now, again, like this was a clear political intervention. It wasn't based on statistics. And the Haitian government, while it initially resisted that, was faced with extraordinary pressure, including direct threats uh, to withhold relief aid from the United States if they did not accept these OAS recommendations. In the end, they did go along with those OAS recommendations after a personal visit from Hillary Clinton uh, in late January 2011. And what you saw then from that point forward, right, is this dramatic alteration of the political landscape in Haiti, where, you know, again, these chosen candidates, you know, not through uh, an election itself or a democratic process, but through this political intervention uh, sort of manifested in this OAS mission. Uh, and, you know, we were on this at the time, uh, you know, we, we hired a team of people and we went through by hand and transcribed every single uh, tally sheet from the election, you know, more than 10,000 to run our own statistical analysis on these and sort of push back on this OAS report. And that was largely, uh, you know, discarded and ignored at the time. But as uh, time has passed, right, I think it, it's become quite clear to academics, researchers, and even folks within the OAS that that was a tragic mistake and a tragic sort of betrayal of their mission as democratic and election observers, right? And so that is the past that has happened before, um, you know, and I think there had been a sort of move away from it. But this, this, uh, you know, occurrence here in Bolivia in 2019 really, uh, you know, echoes back to those that earlier invention intervention in Haiti and just how uh, sort of extreme these occasional interventions on the part of election observers can be. Right. That's such an important contextual story there for us to consider before we dive into Bolivia, because we are in the era of President Donald Trump. And it's easy to write this off as, you know, his, his sort of ne'er-do-well neocon international policy advisors, you know, all the, those guys are at it again, you know, back to the days of George W. Bush. But it's important to, you know, recognize that. Hillary Clinton and her establishment wing of the Democratic Party in many ways has represented this kind of um, this kind of imperialism, you know, with a triangulationist face, almost at a human face. It's quite inhumane what they've done in many places. So I don't want to go that far. But, uh, you know, it's important to understand that this is in many senses, in many cases, a, a bipartisan effort to thumb the scale at minimum in terms of, you know, who's going to be legitimately representing the people of the, the global South, particularly our Southern neighbors in Central and South America and, and in Haiti as well, as you just mentioned. So let's talk a little bit about the OAS. I have discussed this in previous shows, but this the OAS is, is still a bit of an enigma, even to me. And I've read quite a bit on this at this point. You know, talk, historicize the, the birth of the OAS. You know, there, there's some on the maybe perhaps more conspiratorial left that argue that they're a Cold War institution and their mission has not changed since then. They are, you know, solely, uh, you know, hell bent on crushing the left wherever it shows its face. Uh, other people say, no, 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 wait a minute. There, there are well-intentioned people inside the OAS. And it's a question of, of course, you know, institution versus, you know, individual 
intentionality. That's always something that's intention when you study a uh, social phenomenon, right? Is it the uh, individuals and their intentions or is it the institution and the kind of structure that that institution finds itself in? Important questions to ask ourselves. But before we do that, give us a little history lesson uh, of the birth of the OAS and how it has evolved since then. I know that's a big task, but you're the man for the job. Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, again, like as I mentioned, right, this is a hemispheric organization. It's been around for, I guess, probably over 60 years at this point. Uh, but I think, you know, even sort of beyond it, it, its founding, right, it is sort of a hybrid institution uh, sort of crossing those those lines that you discussed, right? I mean, this is, it is uh, made up of member countries, right? So it is, uh, to a certain extent, reflective of the countries at that moment of time throughout the hemisphere. Uh, what is very different about it also uh, is that the United States uh, does have an extremely influential role within the OAS. Uh, you know, its headquarters is here in Washington, but also its budget itself uh, is majority funded by the United States. And I think to sort of understand some of that, it actually sort of makes sense to sort of fast forward and look at some more recent history with the OAS, right? And so you had in the early 2000s and really for a period of about 15 years with the sort of rise of left governments in the hemisphere, you had a real sort of shift away from this, uh, or the OAS and this entity that still uh, sort of you know, elevated the U.S., Canada, and these other actors above, uh, you know, the countries themselves in, in, the, in the southern Western Hemisphere, right? And so you saw the proliferation of new organizations, um, ALBA, SALAC, and these institutions that uh, excluded the U.S. and Canada from these regional groupings and had a real sort of independent, uh, you know, mechanisms being put in place. Mm-hmm. Could you tell our listeners real quick, who, what ALBA and, and others uh, that, that you just mentioned, kind of who, who those countries are represented by and, and, and a little brief lesson there? Yeah, so certainly. So ALBA itself was, you know, sort of a joint project with, with Cuba and Venezuela involved a lot of the sort of adherence to the or, you know countries that were part of the Petro-Caribe agreement, but it sort of went beyond that. Uh, and SALAC was more like a sort of equivalent OAS institution, but one that specifically excluded the OAS in Canada. So it was Mm -hmm. just sort of Latin America and the Caribbean countries that formed that institution. And you also had UNASUR, which was uh, the Union of South American Nations and was another sort of regional entity, uh, sort of organized and supported by left governments in the region, but but bringing in every country within South America. And what you've seen over the last number of years as there's been this political change in South America and Latin America more broadly is the sort of collapse of those alternative institutions and sort of a refocus and re-strengthening of the OAS as a regional actor. Right. And that's a result of the the sort of uh, collapse of the pink tide, right? Because I'm not mistaken, those were co uh, they were contemporaneous with the rise of the pink tide, or at least the early actors that ended up sort of uh, forming the pink tide in that area. Is that right? Alba and Salak and others. Of course, that goes back to the Cuban revolution before that, but um, is that right? Certainly. But yes, their rise was, you know, very much sort of, you know, in parallel to the rise of left governments throughout Latin America and their collapse sort of mirroring that as well. Mm-hmm. Right. And this consolidation, this sort of new consolidation with the or- OAS. And that, you know, process, uh, you know, has really sort of manifested itself more recently as the OAS has been led by uh, Secretary General Luis Almagro, who has become, you know, a sort of outspoken critic of the region's left governments, uh, specifically Venezuela, but elsewhere uh, as well, uh, and has really sort of reasserted the OAS into this sort of more Cold War narrative that we've seen, uh, again, not as a necessarily a change, but as a more overt reflection of that policy that has always sort of been there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Talk to us about uh, Luis Almagro. 
where does he come from? Who installed him? You know, there's been a, a number of uh, really important pieces written about this man. How much power does he have? Frequent guest of the show and uh, journalist Branko Marchetich wrote a, a really good piece in, in These Times magazine several months ago about the making of Luis Almagro as a right-wing hawk. He he wasn't always, you know, that, that wasn't always his ideology. That wasn't always where he was coming from politically. He was originally much more centrist, maybe even center-left at one point. But he has himself made quite the transformation throughout his career is, is my understanding. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, he was a member of the sort of broad left coalition in Uruguay as a politician. Uh, and, and, you know, when he was elected by the member states to head to become secretary general of the OAS, it, it was not opposed by really, uh, you know, any significant number of countries. I mean, he was sort of widely accepted and seen as, as a, you know, totally reasonable politician to lead such an organization. And it's been his sort of transformation, again, at the Hawk, and that's an excellent piece. You know, I'd recommend everyone sort of read that to get this 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 backstory, uh, you know, about that sort of transformation once he was in, in position as Secretary General and supported very heavily by the conservative forces here in the United States, including in the State Department, and especially under the Trump administration, where, uh, you know, sort of that that support has really uh, increased exponentially. And this is, you know, I think uh, an especially relevant context for the situation in Bolivia, because there is something happening. It's actually happening this week, but that is quite relevant for, for everything that happened in Bolivia and the role of the OAS. And that is that his reelection as secretary general of the OAS is actually taking place this Friday. Uh, and so, for the previous number of months, there has been significant efforts throughout the hemisphere to try and rally around or build that support around Almagro for his reelection, uh, because obviously his actions and his rhetoric have alienated uh, both governments on the left, but also governments even on the center who just don't agree with uh, the strategies or tactics or, 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 or rhetoric that uh, Almagro has has espoused in his years as secretary general. And so that that process, that sort of working to gather that support within the hemisphere and also in the lead up to this this week's election of secretary general, I think, you know, will become quite important when we start discussing, uh, you know, more specifics of the Bolivia situation. Right. And just before we get there, is does Almagro have any internal challenge? Is he facing any internal challenges or has that OAS and the member states and the people, the bureaucrats involved in that institution successfully marginalized any of the political forces at this point who, who could have posed the challenge? Yeah, so there, there was, uh, or and to a certain extent still is, uh, a competitive or a you know actual electoral process with other candidates. Uh, there are there were two other candidates, uh, a Peruvian diplomat and an Ecuadorian di diplomat. And the Peruvian sort of represented a similar sort of ideological approach, but sort of a more restrained uh, version of it. And he has since dropped out of the race, leaving the only other competitor being uh, an Ecuadorian former official uh, who does not even have the support of the current Ecuadorian government. And while has the support of Mexico and some uh, Caribbean nations, does not appear to have the level of support to uh, realistically challenge Almagro for, for re-election. Okay, so it looks like the status quo will, will remain intact. Uh, it seems an easy, an easy, an easy game to play right now, particularly in the midst of a global pandemic, to sort of keep the the leaders in place to handle what what's gonna what's gonna happen imminently for many of these countries. Um, let's talk about your report then. It's you know it's it's pocked with statistical analysis, charts and graphs, uh, i.e., things that fly completely over my head. <laughs> I'm a I'm a qualitative uh, qualitative or 
qualitatively oriented guy by nature. Uh, charts, graphs, and numbers uh, tend to lose me. But give us the elevator speech of your particular findings. It seems to solidify and extend the earlier findings by uh, your organization, uh, you know, during the actual calamity in October itself. But it's it's quite definitive what you discovered. Um, first of all, let's contextualize this report. What were your original findings in October? Yeah, exactly. I think you sort of have to start there. And so, you know, again, as you mentioned on election night itself, uh, you know, so in Bolivia, there are two electoral counts, right? Two processes for counting votes. The first, a preliminary non-binding count, which is, you know, designed to get not to 100% of the results, but, you know, a, a highly, a, you know, an elevated number to give you some indication of where things are going. And then an official count, which will take place over a longer period of time, generally within a week, where, you know, ballots are given greater scrutiny and, you know, processed by hand rather than through like a mobile application, which is the preliminary one to get you some indication quick. And so the controversy with the election, you know, election counting itself really started on Sunday night when the preliminary results were announced with about 84 percent of the votes counted. Uh, and Evo Morales's lead over Carlos Mesa was 7.9 percentage points, you know, and that would be underneath the 10 percentage point threshold needed to win in the first round. So with 84 percent counted, things seemed headed towards a second round. And that is when that preliminary count was stopped. And that has been the source of much controversy and something we can come back to. But importantly, the next day, it did pick back up. And when they announced updated results with 95% of the result counted, Morales's margin had increased to just over 10 percentage points, putting him on pace to secure a win in the first round. You know, and this obviously generated uh, a significant pushback and confusion as people sort of misinterpreted what those initial preliminary results had shown. And the Organization of American States did no favors in sort of calming the situation or trying to explain it by issuing a very strongly worded press release that evening, decrying a drastic and inexplicable change in the trend of the vote that undermined the credibility of the election results. And so that was the day after the election. You know, and so for us right away, you know, what we wanted to see was what possible explanation could there be uh, for this change in the trend of the vote between, you know, these two periods of time. And it was quite simple when we looked at the data and the data was, you know, is made publicly available by the electoral authority. They provided updates every three minutes to, to an Excel sheet. So, you know, it's a tremendous amount of data for people like me to actually go through and pour over. And what was abundantly clear from us right from the get go was that when the vote count was initially stopped, where the remaining, uh, the outstanding votes came from were areas that had already shown a clear preference for Morales, right? And so this is like, you know, if you're watching U.S. election returns on the on CNN or something and they, you know, you see a map and they zoom into a precinct and it's 90% for one candidate, but only 3% counted, you know, you can make some sort of informed prediction about the results changing over time. Uh, and it was clear that that's what had happened in Bolivia. And yet, the OAS seemed totally uh, sort of oblivious or that they wouldn't that they didn't even check that this was a possibility. And so that was the first clue to us that something was really amiss with what the OAS was doing in the Bolivian election. Yeah, it was just too obvious at that point that they were ignoring what most casual observers of elections in the United States already know. For example, if there's a state election in Illinois, for example, and only the rural precincts are reporting none of Chicago. Right. And the Republican is up by 90 percent. Right. 
you know, you can probably bet that when the Chicago precincts start result, you know, start reporting that the, the Democratic candidates or candidate are is going to to surge. Who knows if they're going to win, but they're certainly going to surge. Every casual observer of elections knows this. Anybody who's watched, who grew up watching Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room in the late '90s, early 2000s, will tell you with their charts and graphs and you know their holograms and whatnot. Uh, will tell you that this is the case. And so you're, you're suggesting that it was so obviously. Just something was amiss that like these election experts, you know, were somehow missing missing this point. There was definitely uh, something smelled funny. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, and, exactly. And, and, you know, I think there were other indications for us as well. I mean, you know, one thing is we were hearing from people inside the OAS that there was, you know, controversy and, and sort of arguments about what was happening within the mission in Bolivia. Uh, and I mean, myself, as soon as I started looking at this data and saw that this trend change was actually very explainable and, and not drastic or inexplicable at all, I reached out to a, a contact, somebody I've known for many years at the OAS, very high up there, uh, and, and pointed that out to him. And the response was, was quite telling and is one of the reasons why I've continued to look into this. And the response was, we know. Uh, we know there isn't a trend change. Uh, so, you know, it, it was just abundantly clear to us, right, that this was a lie and that they were lying, again, from the day after the election. And so there's been a lot more to cover and we can cover a lot more. But I think it's just so important to focus on that initial lie and that initial press release, because what happened after that was a period of tremendous uh, political upheaval in Bolivia with you know, large protests and at times violent that actually destroyed electoral uh, buildings and destroyed electoral material over a period of weeks that then eventually led to the ouster of Evo Morales as president uh, and sort of the rest of the discussion that we can get into. But it was, you know, again, the OAS as uh, as an election observer, right, as somebody as an institution that's supposed to be uh, neutral and unbiased and, you know, based on clear facts and, and related to the election. Uh, this was just like a grotesque statement, right, that was not based in the reality, but that had a tremendous impact in terms of emboldening those actors who had no intention of respecting the results of this election from the beginning. Right. So before we start breaking down your report, your findings, all the statistical analysis, is there a clear smoking gun inside the OAS right now? Do we have uh, any whistleblower, any kind of paper trails that have emerged, any leaks, any, you know, any hard facts about a, whether or not this proclamation, this early, you know, mistaken proclamation was, was, um, you know, uh, was on purpose, right? And then B, if it was on purpose and orchestrated in advance even, uh, by whom? Do we, do we have any hard facts on that? So, I mean, hard facts are obviously, you know, hard to come by here and we'll take, you know, significant, you know, uh, investigative reporting. And, you know, I'm sure there'll be documents coming out in 50 years that sort of shed plenty of light on this. But in terms of what we know today, I mean, you know, as I just mentioned, you know, from my own interaction with the OAS, uh, you know, sort of acknowledged to me directly that they knew that that was a false statement. Uh, we've had some reporting from other outlets uh, in, in the last sort of couple months. Uh, most relevant, the Los Angeles Times, Tracy Wilkerson, the reporter there, uh, reported that Carlos Trujillo, who is the U.S. representative to the OAS, had pushed the OAS observation mission to find fraud in the election and had steered the U.S. to supporting the ouster of Morales. And so there has been some indication that that was, you know, certainly a factor in this. Um, again, you know, there's been very little 
news coverage of this in general, very little reporting on it. There have been members of Congress have have uh, written to the OAS asking questions. There's been no response. Multiple journalists have reached out to the OAS with pointed questions. They failed to get any response. Uh, so there's been a, a real sort of lack of, of investigative work into what really happened there. And, you know, I think one of our goals with all of this is is keeping this, uh, you know, alive so that there can be that interest, so that there can be that greater investigation into determining what really happened. Because, you know, beyond Bolivia, right, this is an issue of accountability for the OAS. This is an issue of accountability for neutral electron observer, observers, right, to the leadership of Luis Almagro of the OAS. And so this is about something sort of much broader than just the election in Bolivia. But to what extent can the OAS actually be a neutral arbiter in the hemisphere? Pardon the interruption, everybody. I know that you guys are definitely enjoying my interview with Jake Johnston. The man knows more about Central and South America and regime change and election oversight than almost anybody else on the planet. So we'll get back to that very, very soon. But in the meantime, I know things are tough out there for a lot of people right now. There is financial strain in this global economic downturn. There's a lot of anxiety about health, about our future. But some of you are fortunate enough to have pretty consistent salaries throughout the course of this crisis. Some of you will be getting a stimulus check from Donald Trump, the man who he and his Republican Party have managed to outflank the Democratic fucking party in terms of progressive measures to put money in the pockets of poor and working class people. That's pathetic. That's absolutely pathetic. We'll be talking a lot more about that in coming episodes for sure. But many of you will be facing a number of hardships, and some of you won't. The effects of this crisis will be uneven across society for sure. So this is going out to the people who are fortunate enough to have a relatively stable income throughout the course of all of this. If you listen to DPS, if you like shows like it, if you are on the left and you think that spreading the message that is, you know, that is delivered by DPS each week is important, I encourage you to A, either continue your contribution to DPS and podcasts like it, or if you have not yet considered becoming a patron of DPS, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe today. Small creators like myself are going to need a lot of support during this time. So if possible, if you feel comfortable in this moment of high anxiety, I encourage you to become a patron of Dead Pundits. Not only will you get the warm and fuzzies of knowing that you are supporting the new left agenda and getting democratic socialist politics out into the airwaves, but you will also get access to our weekly B-sides. Our B-sides are patron-exclusive episodes wherein we take on topics that are often a little bit too spicy or sometimes a little bit too high level for the general public. So you will also get access to that. I'm going to be putting out some additional audio content in our new series, relatively new series at this point, called In Case You Missed It, where I bring you audio from across space and time. These audio clips are going to be coming up in the next couple of weeks are from other podcasts or other videos that are coming out related to the economic crisis that we find ourselves in. So I will be curating some content from across the globe, across the interwebs for my patrons. I think that's an important service. There's so much shit out there. You know, you, you, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss most of it. So I try to curate that content for my patrons when I can, when something good comes along that I want to share with them. Additionally, I know a lot of you are going to be cash strapped. So if that is your situation, I encourage you to spread the word about DPS. Right now, it is astonishing to me how many people are coming to democratic socialist politics through the Bernie wave. 
And yet they are still getting their news. They're still getting their analysis. They're still getting their politics and their theory from outlets like the Young Turks, right? From outlets like Majority Report. And I got nothing but love for those types of outlets, but they are unequivocally not democratic socialists in orientation, and they most certainly do not provide the kind of in-depth and nuanced analysis that we're going to need in order to educate and build socialist cadres for future struggles. In fact, there are only a handful of podcasts who do that effectively, and I'm proud to say that DPS is one of them. So if you think that that's important, get on Twitter. Yeah, I said it. You guys are probably on Twitter anyway. Everybody's anxiety scrolling all day long now, including myself. Get on Twitter and share this episode and hashtag it with dead pundits. So somewhere, anywhere in your message, try to be nice. I'm a sensitive guy. Okay, I have feelings. So be nice. Okay, Uh, but in your message, write hashtag dead pundits. And I will hand select a couple of the people who share this episode and give them a shout out on the air next week. So if you can't afford to become a patron of Dead Punnett Society, I encourage you to share this episode out to your networks. Organic reach is almost impossible to achieve because Twitter and Facebook have locked down their platforms for the sake of their own profits and ad money. But that's another story. Share this episode with hashtag Dead Punnett's and I will select a few of you and give you a shout out on the air. Immortalize you on the airwaves, if you will. (laughs) So everybody become a patron if you can. If not, share hashtag dead pundits and enjoy the rest of my interview with Jake Johnston. Right. And one of my bones that I pick with some of my, uh, you know, my colleagues, my comrades on the on the far left, the Democratic Socialist left, is that, you know, they they, you know, have a lack of respect, a lack of understanding for the need for these kind of um, multilateral bodies, these watchdog groups, of course they're they're not neutral. Of course, uh, the power structure, as Bernie Sanders uh, said on national television last week, uh, plays a really important role. But you know, when bodies like this de- delegitimize themselves, delegitimate themselves, um, you know, it, it, it's bad for everyone, right? We do need, you know, you could you could imagine certain actually authoritarian regimes, you know, um, in the future. Right. Uh, Calling question to the presence of OAS in their country because, you know, pointing to these obvious, you know, obvious instances of of meddling. Um, So, you know, so what you're doing, it sounds to me, is not only just sort of trying to find justice for the people of Bolivia, but also working to to hold organizations like OAS to account because they are actually important. Would you agree with that? I mean, are, are bodies like the OAS important? This is a this is a a controversial question or claim on in some sectors of the left. Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly I think, you know, regional coordination is, is, you know, obviously an important principle and something that has been, you know, a sort of guiding principle of the left in Latin America for, for so long. Right. And I think obviously there are problems with the OAS, uh, you know, and that's sort of exactly why issues like this and keeping focus on issues like this is so important. Right. And I think, you know, when you look at some of the interest from, from the rest of the region into this issue, right. Again, it's, it's countries that are concerned about how this might uh, empower the OAS to operate within their own election. Right. So that this setting a precedent, a dangerous precedent for how the OAS can involve themselves in elections throughout the hemisphere. And we've already seen cases where that is, uh, you know, become relevant in the Dominican Republic and Guyana, where there have been controversial elections just in the last couple of months. Uh, you, you know, and again, so what is the legitimacy? What is the sort of trust that, uh, you know, 
governments and people can actually have in the OAS to deliver, uh, you know, independent assessments of these situations and provide clarity. Because I think, you know, there is, um, you know, there's an extent, right, to which what we're arguing about here is like the the facts of the matter, right? You need some level of, you know, independent uh, analysis, right, to sort of provide that clarity in the midst of these situations where, you know, again, it's not abnormal for there to be claims of electoral fraud. I mean, having followed elections in, you know, in Haiti and elsewhere throughout the hemisphere, there are almost always claims of fraud, right? That doesn't necessarily mean that they are always, uh, they exist, <laughs> right? And so to have some, uh, you know, independent ability to monitor those things and to check those things is clearly important. Uh, the question becomes, right, if it actually is that independent mechanism or not. And I think that's, again, why this is so important is because that's where the focus, you know, needs to be is, is can this institution actually play that role? Or does it need to undergo significant more reforms? Or do there need to be new institutions, you know, strengthened in order to provide a sort of balance to what the OAS has become? Right. With the uh, collapse of the pink tide and other political movements that grounded these kind of alternative transnational, international, multilateral uh, institutions and organizations, you know, you, you find yourself stuck with the OAS and asking yourself what to do next. Um, you know, it wasn't long ago that we were asking what a, what a president Bernie Sanders would do in the face of this kind of corruption, in the face of this kind of, you know, blatantly naked imperialism. We, unfortunately, it doesn't look like we're going to be able to ask that question in the concrete now, but uh, the, the role of the left and the progressive left is still as important as ever, if not perhaps more important. Yeah, we can talk about that until we're blue in the face, but let's let's get to the specifics of the report. I got to be honest with you, Jake. Uh, a lot of the stuff was over my head. How, how should we get into this? How, how do you like to get into sort of uh, articulating, uh, communicating the, the real basic facts of your findings to to a sort of lay audience? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, the, the first and sort of most, uh, you know, sort of important thing is the statistical analysis that we've covered. Right. And just that the OAS sort of perpetuated this idea that there had been this drastic change in trend, that the preliminary count stopped and that in this period of which it was stopped, there was somehow some, you know, large manipulation of the results that are then manifested itself in this drastically different result that was offered later. Right. And that was the narrative of fraud. That was what was, you know, put in newspapers all over the world. That's what the government officials were saying, et cetera. Uh, and so, you know, the first part is just that the statistical analysis on that part, you know, was clearly flawed, right? And, and despite those clear flaws perpetuated over, you know, many, many months, right? And so that's sort of one distinct part of it. Uh, now, what the OAS's sort of response has been to the extent that they've responded at all is to say, well, okay, whatever, but in our audit of this election, we discovered a host of other irregularities and problems that proved that sort of confirmed this idea that there had been fraud. Right. And that's certainly how the OAS reports and the audit of the election have been used. Right. So the de facto government, which took uh, took power after the coup that ousted Morales, right, has literally used this OAS report, this audit. Uh, as justification for their usurpation of power and for the persecution of former government officials and electoral officials uh, in the months that have that have transpired since that ouster. Right. And so, you know, politically, I think, you know, that's an important part to understand. Uh, when we get into the specifics of what the OAS found and what some of our criticisms were, I mean, I think you can sort of think about it a few different ways here. Uh, you know, the OAS presented uh, a set of facts and information that were highly stylized, uh, you know, omitted key pieces of information and key bits of analysis from from their audit, uh, 
which drastically changed the sort of perception of what they had found, but mm-hmm. in turn sort of grossly misrepresented what the work of the auditors had actually shown, right? So there's, again, these two systems, right? And so because they are two distinct systems, the preliminary and official systems through two different uh, avenues, you can check the results between the two systems. And the OAS actually did this. And so they compared the results from the official and preliminary systems. They found that vote candidate totals matched across 99.8% of the tally sheets in either system, right? And so this is clear indication that there wasn't actually any direct manipulation of the numbers themselves, right? Now, the next part of that, the OAS says, you know, they, they include that finding in a parenthetical aside on page 80 of 95 of their audit, right? It's not sort of elevated or discussed with any sort of context or relevancy. And the other part of this, right, is that what the OAS has claimed, and this has been sort of widely reported, was that there was significant fraudulent tally sheets, alteration of tally sheets with forged signatures, and these sort of very damning sounding findings that have been sort of perpetuated all over the world about what the OAS found. And the OAS report, I think it's just worth noting, right? It's it's a hundred page report with 500 pages of annexes. You know, I think it's pretty likely that I'm like one of 10 people in the world who's actually read that full report, right? Uh, so everyone just repeated the press release from yeah. the OAS audit, right? Nobody actually read the report itself, and nobody took a close look at what the evidence actually was. Yeah. I mean, these, and as these we started, stenographers and the journalist class, you know, the, the mainstream journalist class, I don't have a lot of respect for, will happily just read and regurgitate any press release written by the OAS and call it authoritative and collect their check and get their name on the masthead of some major, you know, uh, periodical publication in the U.S. Uh, God bless people like you for going uh, into the details. Um, right. So- and so the, the press release itself, right, claimed that there was intentional manipulation that, you know, changed the results of the election. Now, the clear sort of, you know, interpretation of that is there was widespread fraud that changed the results of the election. Right now, the audit itself never actually uses the word fraud. And how oh. I would characterize what they did was basically tie together as many procedural irregularities and problems with an election as they could. And again, Every election in the world has irregularities if you look close enough, right? They tied them all together into one sort of coherent plot to fraudulently change the results of the election. And as we went through the audit and started pulling apart these various things, uh, it was just quite clear that they were grossly tying these things together that they had that had no relation to one another. Or counting, uh, you know, for example, one of the big findings was that. Uh, there was a destruction of electoral material, and this was an intentional manipulation of the results of the election. But of course, as I mentioned earlier, most of the electoral material that was destroyed were destroyed in opposition protest when they attacked and burned electoral offices throughout the country. So including that as part of a government plot to steal the election just makes no logical sense, right? And yet this was one of the primary findings elevated and highlighted in the audit itself, right? And so when you started to disaggregate these things and pull them apart and look at them, right, it was clear that the story that was being perpetuated by the OAS was just not actually backed up, forget by anything else, not backed up by their own audit, right? And I think that's the most important thing is, you know, we, we didn't have to look at for other information. I mean, our analysis is just actually reading the OAS report and saying what's actually in the report, yeah. but actually putting it into context, right? And, and that's really, you know, what we've done here is just sort of provide that context and analysis of the audit itself. 
Yeah. I mean, that's the stuff shirts who run these uh, institutions and organizations themselves probably can't understand the data. And I think there's a real important distinction here between, you know, the, the, the sort of bean counters, the data collectors, right, versus the crafters of narratives. And that seems to be the, where the nuance and the complexity comes in in assessing the OAS and other like, you know, other similar institutions like it. Because, you know, there are these, you know, plucky, well-intentioned kind of, uh, you know, stats-oriented bean counters, right, who work for these organizations. And, and they deliver their reports and they do the best they can. They try to be as accurate as possible, you know, to suggest that they're just puppets on a string being guided by these, you know, diabolical forces from the top. It's just not necessary because they do their work and then other people come along and they, they take the work as the raw materials and they cynically craft their narratives as it pleases them. And so there doesn't have to be a grand conspiracy from the top all the way to the bottom. It just has to be something as, as simple as what you've just traced is, is you know, just sort of um, massaging the, the data to, to suggest that it says things that it doesn't. And then, and then count on some of these journalists who are, you know, look, let's be charitable or in many cases are underpaid, you know, under-resourced. They're doing the best they can. They're under a lot of pressure. All right. That's about as charitable as I'm going to get for these mainstream types. Um, but <laughs> Uh, they, they can count on them to just report this in their, you know, in their outlets, uh, almost, you know, well, not almost entirely verbatim and then cite the OAS as a legitimate body and, and you know, go home. Right. That's job, job. Well, yeah. Done. Right. And I think, you know, in, in our analysis, right, we, we try to separate the work of the auditors themselves and the work that they did analyzing the election from the work of the authors of the audit report. Right. And I think that's a key distinction here. Right. Is that it's not even condemning the work of the auditors who actually did a lot of really tremendous work <laughs> analyzing this election. But it's what of those points were highlighted by the authors, how it was framed. Right. And how it was actually put together. That's the problematic part of it. Right. That's how you get the sort of gross misrepresentations of what the auditors actually found. You know, so one one sort of example of this. Right. Uh, you know, the. One way that you can check the legitimacy of a vote, right? I mean, so in Bolivia, you know, this involves getting a little into the weeds here, but at a voting center, right, say there's 10 voting tables and people go and vote at each of those 10 tables. And then at the end of the day, each table produces a tally sheet, so it, which has, you know, the votes for each candidate in it. And so across the country, there's about 35,000 of these tally sheets, right? So the question here was, are the results legitimate or not, right? Can we trust the results? Now, one thing auditors could do uh, would be to go to get the physical copies of those tally sheets that are stored in the electoral tribunals all over the country, right, and compare them with what was published publicly on the Internet, right, and actually sort of check the legitimacy of them. But, of course, this, the auditor's work was taking place at a time when there was significant protest throughout the country. And, in fact, the auditors were pulled from the field before they had even completed or even sort of done a representative sample in terms of that actual verification work. So the main point of the audit to, to sort of test the legitimacy of the results, that work was not even actually done or completed by the auditors, right? And yet it's sort of presented as, you know, this categorical finding, we couldn't, we couldn't validate the results. Well, of course you couldn't validate the results. Because there were far-right <laughs> right? Christian fascist paramilitary types, you know, trashing government offices and making sure that those charts and tallies uh, were were to never be found. You know, I mean, it, that, that's the, the fact that they're, you know, omitting that 
you know, that political, that key political nugget is, is unconscionable. Um, right. And, and, and that's why this sort of idea of the framing of everything is important, right? Because from a purely technical standpoint, when you have, you know, a significant chunk of original electron material destroyed, right? Of course, you can't verify 100% of the results because there's literally nothing to check, right? But the leap from that to this was all a coordinated fraud, right, is extremely large, right? And so, you know, again, it, it's sort of tying these things together into one sort of coherent, intentional plot to steal an election versus an honest analysis of an election that clearly had problems, right? But that could be addressed going forward, right? Things like that, that didn't result in, you know, the overthrow of a democratically elected government, uh, you know, state-sponsored massacres by security forces in the aftermath of such, right? There's tremendous political ramifications of these decisions and these statements by the OAS. Right. So in a sense, you're also, you know, I mean, I've had guests on in the past and I will continue to have guests on, I'm sure, as a result of your findings in, in, in the coming months and years. Um, some guests who are very sympathetic to the Pink Tide, very sympathetic to Evo Morales and his Moss government and, and that coalition, even though it is sort of unraveling as we speak. Um, you know, but they're critical of Morales. They're critical of the Pink Tide. They're critical of the kind of political economic foundation on which the Pink Tide was built. That it it is it is uh, pocked full of holes. It's it's very fragile. It's collapsing. It's it's you know lends itself to bureaucratization. It's, there's a lot of sympathetic, like, you know, fellow traveler oriented criticisms of the pink tide of Morales and, and so on and so forth. But it, but it seems to me that, you know, you have to put that to the side when you're talking about just getting justice for this particular instance, because we have to remember that Morales himself was run out of the country that, you know, that some very, very seedy and um, illegitimate leaders are now in, you know, at least temporary control of that country. And, you know, so my question here is what chance do you think there is in getting some, some restorative justice here? Does the OAS have the leverage? Is there any way to bring uh, any, any of this to bear on the actual political situation going forward in Bolivia? You know, I think there's a, a few ways in which that can happen, right? I mean, I think, you know, to sort of take a, one step back, right? I mean, I think, you know, none of this is sort of meant to paper over any legitimate criticisms of, you know, the former Bolivian government or anything else, right? Because I think we, we need to be able to disaggregate these things and have an honest conversation about the role of an international institution and what the proper role of that should be absent, uh, you know, or removed from the fact or whatever the conditions are, right, in Bolivia itself, right? This is about, again, you know, accountability for the OAS. But I think that obviously does have some impact on the situation in Bolivia. There's a few ways. I mean, one is, you know, currently there's around 40 former electoral officials who are being uh, prosecuted for electoral crimes. Former government officials are also facing charges for electoral crimes. And the prosecutors have actually just openly said that the basis of these investigations is the OAS report itself. Right. And so I think it's extremely important in terms of, you know, the justice for people who are being persecuted by this government today. Right. To that this can impact that. Right. That if there is, you know, that changing the perception of the legitimacy of that OAS report and, and its findings. Right. It has an extreme relevancy to the people who are in jail today based on that report. Right. So like just a direct way like that. I think, you know, the other side is that there are new elections scheduled uh, in Bolivia, right, in May. And, you know, we'll see sort of how that develops. But the OAS will certainly be involved in observing those elections, right? And so it's of extreme importance that the OAS, right, 
at least, uh, you know, is pushed to take a more neutral stance uh, in that upcoming vote, right? And I think focusing uh, and, and, you know, shining a light on these past actions goes a long way sort of preventing, uh, you know, bad actions by the OAS in the future. And that has real implications for the upcoming vote in Bolivia. Right. I think in that sense, your your report is a bit of a wink <laughs> to the people who would who would try to do this again, isn't it? You know, like in the movie, you know, that you see that in that scene from the movie where like the bad guy is about to do something, you know, diabolical. But then he then he sees the hero on the other side of the room and he and the hero kind of gives him a little wink or a little nod. Just kind of like, I see you. I see what you're about to do over there. Maybe think otherwise. Right. You know, uh, to, to make this into some kind of like blockbuster summer blockbuster superhero plot in which you are the the hero. So. Uh, you know, so I'm sure you'll, you'll, you'll appreciate, appreciate that, that the question. analogy. Yeah. 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 yeah, but, yeah. You know, I think it is important, right? It's <laughs> that, you know, there's so little focus on the actions of these powerful institutions, right? I mean, so often it's just sort of taken as fact, whatever they say. Uh, and there's very little effort to actually push back on that or to have an analysis of that. Right. And I think, you know, one of the reasons why we did this, you know, and obviously it's, it's sort of months after the actual election itself that we were able to put this out. Uh, but it's, it's of course still relevant because it's really important for the OAS to know that there are still folks watching this. There are still folks analyzing what they're doing and, and asking for accountability for these, for these actions. Right. Right. Spot on. Uh, you know, final question. I'd like to kind of give, ask my, you know, my, my guests to give a, a rallying cry, a call to the barricades, uh, some hope, uh, maybe just kind of what to look out for in the future. You know, you'd mentioned there are some elections that are going to be taking place in May. Maybe that might be the best way to kind of sign off here. And you can add on anything else that we have that I have neglected to sort of uh, prompt you about if you'd like. But what are we looking at in May? Is there you know, is there any hope for a restoration of Morales and his Moss movement? Um, That's a little that's a little um, (laughs) Moss movement is a little uh, gringo and a little uh, redundant, isn't it? Uh, Two two movements in that sentence. Uh, But anyway, uh, is there hope? going forward for Moss and Morales in, in May? Yeah, I think there is. I, I just want to make you know one more point on, on our analysis and just to sort of highlight two of the significant findings, uh, which I think, you know, sort of everyone can understand, right? And one is this issue of the stoppage of the preliminary count, right? And that was sort of, again, as I mentioned earlier, the sort of, you know, original sin here. This was like the sort of thing that sort of set the whole chain of events off. And, you know, one thing the OAS could have done, one would expect them to have done, is provide some clarity around what actually happened, right? Why was it stopped and why was it restarted and what happened in this time period? Now, all the OAS has said is that it was unjustified and that the decision to stop the preliminary count was an act of intentional manipulation, right? Now, two facts that are never mentioned in the OAS audit, not, not a single time. One is that the internal contractor hired to audit the election sent a maximum alert to the electoral authority right before the decision to stop it, highlighting the presence of an external server, not in the you know security schematics, that was transmitting data to uh, the, the results database. Right Now, the presence of that server is being cited by the OAS as intentional manipulation, but they never mentioned that the, uh, the recognition or the you know, uh, you know, highlighting of that server was in fact done internally and before the decision to stop it and came as a surprise to the electoral authorities, which seems like it was the reason they stopped their vote in uh, the first place. Right. right. This is just not even mentioned, uh, you know, and then there's a, a post hoc rationalization of something that they didn't even have knowledge of at the time is what you're suggesting. 
Right. And so, you know, you, you think there's been a lot of talk, oh, these foreign servers, you know, this must be, it sounds very shady, right? You don't want to have foreign servers involved in, a, in an election, right? Uh, but the reason why the preliminary count seems to have been stopped was because of the detection of that foreign server, I right? See. Not uh, the introduction of it to manipulate the results, but rather it was stopped because of it. And during the time it was stopped, that server was investigated. Uh, the logs were reviewed, everything internally to the server, and it was determined that there had been no alteration or manipulation of the data. Now, these are all reports from the security companies that were involved in the election. And again, not referenced a single time in the OAS report. Yeah. And then the one other point that I, you know, that I, I just want to make about this is the OAS did flag 200 of these tally sheets, right? Uh, just over 200, 226 uh, that they claim were fraudulent, uh, that were filled out by the same person, they said. And when we looked at this, what we found was that the actual allegation was that the names of the individuals, the you know electoral workers who were on the tally sheets, uh, in some cases, uh, one person wrote wrote the names of on two or more tally sheets, right? Not all 226, but that in a number of small, predominantly small rural voting centers where there may have only been one or two or two or three voting tables to begin with, one person wrote the names on those sheets. But they don't actually come up with anything about the signatures themselves or the results themselves being fraudulent. And when we looked at this, it become almost entirely from overwhelmingly indigenous majority areas within the country. Now, these are areas that it's very little surprise that they overwhelmingly voted for the nation's first indigenous president, Evo Morales, right? And yet these are the tally sheets. These are the examples of fraud that the OS has come up with, right? And so what it looks like is actually sort of criminalizing, uh, you know, indigenous votes and not a real analysis of what happened. And when you look at those 226 sheets, the results on them are actually almost exactly similar to all of the results from other tally sheets in those same areas, right? So if you went into a voting center and there were 10 voting tables and the OAS said, well, these two are clearly fraudulent. They had the same handwriting on them. But if the results on those two tally sheets look exactly like the results on the other eight tally sheets from the same voting center, right? There's nothing to indicate that that would actually impact the results of the election. What the OAS is finding are these sort of procedural irregularities, right? but nothing to indicate that this is some vast conspiracy or fraudulent activity. Um, so I just I wanted to make sure that that got in there as some of the yeah. sort of main findings. Totally. Um, I mean, because there's another distinction to be made there as well, right? And I was, in, I was, I went on strike with a union, with local, at one point, and you know we we're on strike for about a month, and this seems a little a bit of a, a, a non sequitur, unrelated, but bear with me, Jake and audience. Uh, and you got to do things like keep track of hours on the picket line, so you get your picket pay, right? Your strike pay. And the, the strike captains are tasked with tracking people down and logging their hours and getting their signatures. And let me tell you, um, it's a very difficult thing to, to take all of these tally sheets and, and get all of them calculated and figure out who's owed what. And you're going to have irregularities and then all this, you know, and there are a number of, you know, fights that can erupt in that moment, claiming corruption, claiming people are trying to defraud an organization, whatever. But there's a distinction to be made there, Right. There's a distinction between, you know, what people's intentions were and just people just not really knowing what to do or what boxes to check or how to fill out a fucking form. And, you know, that seems like a ridiculous story, but like, I mean, you, you can imagine similar, similar flaws happening everywhere all the time, constantly. 
But then to take those types of, you know, those types of faults, and they are faults, and we should work to try to you know, develop procedures and processes where exactly. those types of things don't happen. But then to use those types of flaws to suggest that there was, you know, direct fraud and it, and it somehow, you know, nullifies the results or the intentions of the, of the voters, that's a tremendous step to take. And again, that would require, you know, comparing it next to, you know, other comparable data sets to try to figure out, is this an aberration? Is this in line with how these people would have voted or meant to vote? And, and you're suggesting that, that none of that, none of that type of work has happened. It's just a purely technocratic gesture to, to look at forms that were filled out incorrectly and then extrapolate from that this massive fraud. Yeah, that's exactly right. Right. And so I, I mentioned the, you know, indigenous speaking majorities in most of these areas. Right. And, you know, one of the reasons why I mentioned that is because the tally sheets themselves are written in Spanish. Right. Uh, and, and so could that have been an explanation? Right. Like, could it have been an explanation for some? Like, none of those things are actually addressed or considered in the OAS analysis. Right. It's just taken as a fact that this must be fraudulent. Right. And I think that's one of the questions when you go into an election. Right. Again, uh, it, Every election is going to have irregularities, right? It's it's how you sort of interpret those, right? And how you actually sort of put that together. And, you know, again, that's why, you know, most observation missions are designed towards recommending things to improve a process going forward. But using those sort of procedural irregularities to undermine an election results writ large is an unprecedented step from the OAS. Right. Final question, final provocation. You are studying elections. You're getting in, in, in depth, looking at forms and statistics and, and all the rest of it. You know, one could say that the the increase in technology and other forms of accountability are a good thing for elections, right? We're not just scribbling things or everybody remembers the dangling chads of 2000. And we don't want to go back to those days. And people are, you know, digitizing these things and putting other forms of accountability, which are sometimes good and bad. You know, we saw the shadow app being implemented in the lead up to the Democratic <laughs> Party primary, which was, um, you know, either fraudulent or farcical or both. Um, but, but you know, this is a new, this is a new avenue of, of not only possible political fuckeration, as I would, as I would call it, but also, um, you know, activism. And it sounds like you guys are on the forefront of this because on the one hand, it's, it's, it's good that we have these extra measures of technology and accountability. We can't just stuff ballot boxes the way that these party bosses and these machines have done for, for hundreds of years, if not longer. But with that being said, this increase in, in technical complexity – Right, will very quickly overwhelm the intellectual capacities of our journalistic class and 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 our just mass public, right? Such that, despite or in spite of, or even maybe because of these forms of oversight and digital kind of accountability, we're still we're able to kind of cook the books even more completely. Does that make sense? So in, in a sense, like we're actually becoming more vulnerable to these types of machinations than maybe we even were before kind of maybe kind of just expand on 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 the the importance of of all of this moving forward and having like legitimate and democratic electoral processes. Yeah, no, I think that's, you know, it's so important, right? And I think that's, you know, one of the things that this case in Bolivia really sort of highlighted, right? And and the focus around the technological aspects and the security schematics of the IT system and things like that was this was really one of the first times the OAS actually investigated that in a country, right? And so it found these sort of procedural problems and was shocked by them. But the the reality, right, and if you talk to electoral experts, you know, people who focus on U.S. elections, state elections like this is that, you know, these IT systems, right, that we use to sort of, 
you know, run elections all over the world, including, again, in the United States, you know, are, are sort of ripe with these problems and irregularities and database management and all of these issues that that really can have an impact, right? I mean, that they can be significant, but also just the mere existence of an irregularity, right, is not abnormal whatsoever. But it does sort of hint to the, uh, you know, the need for, you know, greater focus on those issues sort of writ large, not just in Bolivia, of course, but, you know, in electoral systems all over the world is, is what, you know, those sort of IT aspects really entail and how those things are actually run in practice. Right. In a sense, we've got more technology and the more possibility for accountability, but, uh, and yet these systems are still becoming like more opaque. Right. Aren't they? And there's a, as they become more sort of expert driven, expert oriented, the, the pool of people who can, you know, not only sort of, you know, implement, but also understand that complexity, that pool of people gets smaller, you know, in a way. So this, 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 you know, this becomes even more important as we go on, doesn't it? All right. Well, Jake Johnston, you are, uh, as always, reminding the audience, research associate with the Center for Economic and Policy Research, focusing on Haiti, but also election irregularities in Bolivia and elsewhere. Thanks so much for coming on the show. And uh, let's let's touch base here in several months to talk about what, what, what comes next following these elections in May and so on. Thanks so much for joining us on DPS. Sure thing. Sure.